This is a Rooster Teeth production. Dateline, April 7th, 1922. For the first time ever in history, two flying machines have collided in the air. During a foggy day, a plane from London and a plane from Paris collide in midair as villagers on the ground watch in horror. Join us for this special supplemental episode of Black Box Down, where we're going to talk about some of the very first aviation incidents that occurred about 100 years ago and began paving the way for the rules that we follow today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris with another supplemental episode. Hello, supplemental Chris. Hi, supplemental Gus. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, with these episodes, we're kind of between, you know, regular episodes. We still want to do something. We try to do something a little different, like uh, last time we did, you know, student pilot stories. This time, we're going to start off talking about the very first time planes ever collided in midair. That's crazy to think about. Right. There was a time where, like, it hadn't happened, and then there was a first time. <laughs> in fact, initially, when, you know, when when aviation started... The thought was, you know, there weren't very many planes back then. Obviously, it was super expensive. It was kind of new technology. The thought was that it was impossible for two planes to collide because there were so few planes and the sky is uh-huh. so big. Like, how would this ever happen? But sure enough, in 1922, what is that? Uh, 19 years after the Wright brothers' first flight, it finally did happen. Yeah. Humans find a way of messing things up no matter what. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's when some of these rules began to get formed that you know, some of these things that we still you know follow today which isn't to say that they didn't have rules at the time it, you're, you're going to be you're going to have your head in your hands at how this first incident we're talking about happened and we're also going to cover some other incidents as well but this first one we're going to talk about i think is um is really influential so this first time it was ever a midair collision between two uh planes occurred uh, over the picardy region of france so I po- i'm going to apologize in advance there's a lot of french names in this episode okay. <laughs> i'm, I'm going to butcher it i apologize so Dennis has pointed out to me, I, sh- I should be careful. This is the first time two airliners collided in midair. Uh, I don't know if there was actually a collision before this, but this is the first time, you know, planes with passengers. Uh, planes collided. with passengers. Okay. Mm-hmm. So one of these airplanes was a Farman F-60 Goliath, which was a small biplane with two propeller engines could carry up to eight passengers. Remember, these were, <laughs> this was a long yeah. time, this was a hundred years ago. This was, uh, <laughs> you're not dealing with modern numbers. So, but this plane was considered one of the first airliners, uh, and only 60 of these were ever built. This plane was operated by Compagni de Grand Express Ariane. I, t- I told you, lots of French this episode. I uh-huh. apologize. So it had five people on board, of which, you know, one was a pilot, three were passengers, and one was a mechanic. The other plane was a De Havillande DH-18A, which was a single-engine biplane that could also carry eight passengers. Uh, and only three of that specific plane were ever built. That plane was operated by... Daimler Hire Limited, and it had two people on board. It was a pilot and his young steward. Only three. It's not a good uh, design if you get three made. there wasn't much of a market yet. This was still incredibly expensive. The fact that they sold three is probably amazing, honestly. Okay. So, I mean, let's let's, let's put this in perspective. I guess I was trying to... My only perspective is the 60. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Uh, Compared to the other one? Yeah, you're right. This is not nearly as popular. So... On the morning of April 7th, 1922, the Havion took off from Croydon in South London, bound for Le Bouget in Paris with a payload of mail. So that's why there were only two people on okay. that plane. They were, they were delivering mail. At about noon, the Goliath, which is the one that had more people on it, took mm-hmm. off from Le Bouget, bound for Croydon. The weather was marginal with low-hanging clouds, fog, and a light drizzle. So not great weather. Uh, and at this time instrument flying hadn't been invented yet. (laughs) 
<laughs> like I said, it's a long time ago. So both pilots were flying at the base of the cloud layer uh, using the ground as reference. Mm -hmm. So guess what? They're both at the same altitude. Like you're already kind of starting to, yeah. to set the stage for a disaster here. So they're having to fly at the base of the clouds, which causing them both to be at the same altitude, which is uh, not ideal. And at the time, there was an informal practice that existed that the plane should be offset from navigational landmarks based on the rules of the road. So, for example, the French pilot would fly up a roadway offset to the right side and look down and the road would be on the left. Just kind of like how when you're driving, right? You drive yeah. on the right side of the road. Yeah. So then traffic coming from the opposite direction would pass on their left. Again, just like when you're driving on the road. That makes sense. Right. The same practice, of course, was done in England as well. Hey, but you know what happens in England? Well, they switch. People drive on the left. Oh, no. <laughs> so the <laughs> pilot for the Haviland or Haviland set himself up on the left side of the road, which put the two planes on a collision course. Oh, no. So, you know, they're still fly they're flying under visual rules. They're kind of following this road. They're at the same altitude because they have to be below the clouds. And because of this difference on what side of the road people drive on, they're heading straight for each other. And they end up colliding about 60 miles north of Paris over the small village of Tioli Saint Antoine. God, this used to be a terrible, terrible pronunciation. I apologize if you speak French. So there's actually a quote, you know, even though this is 100 years ago, there's a quote from the New York Times report on the incident. Uh, and I'm going to read you uh, that quote right here. It was about 1.15 when the drone of a big machine was heard by the villagers who daily see many airplanes flying toward London. A thick fog covered the whole landscape, accompanied by a steady drizzle of rain. Suddenly, a huge machine appeared as if coming out from behind a curtain of, at a height of about 150 meters, proceeding in the direction of London. It was a Goliath. Hardly had it appeared when a smaller machine shot forth from behind the fog screen flying toward Paris. Those watching had no time to think before a sinister crash resounded through the air, and the next thing they saw were masses of debris, broken wood and bent metal, hurtling to the ground. The two airplanes had telescoped each other and after staggering blindly for a few short seconds, crashed burning to the earth. One wing of the Goliath completely torn off was hurled to the roof of a nearby building, smashing the top completely while the rest of the machine fell in a field. The smaller machine fell near it, making a hole a meter and a half deep. Quick side note, I think it's interesting that they call planes flying machines and they constantly refer to it as the machine or the machine. Yeah, because I guess there wasn't common vernacular for it right i guess it's all still being and then and they, i guess they are machines you know but it's just not what we would have said uh, what we would yeah. say nowadays i guess the flying machine yeah you're, it makes i almost think like well what what is that it must not be a plane if you're referring to well, like it, that. it makes me i don't know why maybe it's the time period so it makes me think of like a steampunk yeah uh, like alternate like, history where it's like this flying machine in the air some sort of like airship type thing right. that's yeah so you know like we said it happened near a village. The villagers immediately went to both crash sites. Uh, and they found that everyone had been killed, except for the steward who was taken to the hospital, but he also passed away from his injuries. Mm. If I remember right, I think there was even some confusion at the time. I think they thought it was the pilot who had survived, but it was just, you know, a confusing time. And it turned out it was the steward who had initially survived and then ultimately passed away from his injuries. Dang. So after this accident, aviation authorities from around the world got together to discuss the situation and a number of changes were recommended and approved. The mid-air collision resulted in a universal definition of right-of-way in the air, where planes should offset to the right when flying over roads and landmarks, and that on seeing another aircraft approach head-on, that they should each turn to the right and thereby avoid a collision. So they standardized, like, hey, yeah. I know you guys drive on the left side of the road. 
When you're flying, go on the right. And if you're coming head on, both turn to the right. That way, you don't both turn in the same direction. You don't do that awkward mm-hmm. thing when you're walking towards someone on the sidewalk uh, and you both uh, go in the same yeah. direction. Exactly. Did, and there may not be information on this, did the two planes both turn towards each other to avoid each other? Did that happen? I don't know. Uh, there's really, I, I don't, you know, obviously there were no black boxes. Yeah. It was kind of a foggy, dreary day. There's Eyewitness accounts would be unreliable at best. Yeah. So I, I can't answer that for certain. But, you know, they want to make sure yeah. they're being at least proactive about it. And this accident also spurred the creation of the world's first airway system. Uh, it's the same, like, quote-unquote, highways in the sky that we use today, uh, combining lower-altitude airways with the jet airways of higher altitudes. Checkpoints are connected by straight-line airways between them, enabling aircraft separation by altitudes on the airways, and conversely giving rise to the system of westerly headings on even altitudes and easterly headings on odd altitudes, which is an, something we talked about. Yeah. Remember we talked about uh, that Embraer and Goal Airlines mm-hmm. collision? This incident we're talking about now in 1922 led to kind of these systems that we still use today, 100 years later, just like general rules of thumb to increase safety. And that's crazy that they came up with rules that were so good that they still work. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. they haven't been, like, changed. They're like, yeah, that's a system that works. Yeah, and it scales. You know, obviously, yeah. planes are much bigger now, much faster. But it's like, just these simple rules of thumb help make things so safe. And they said, for think about, like... <laughs> A hundred years ago, like so much has changed, but it's still like these rules are fundamentally so good. We still kind of use them. And even like the idea of airways and, you know, separating things by altitude. It's just, it's just great that they came up with all of this. And you know, what's good is they standardize it across the world. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like versus now and you drive, like even driving, it depends on the country. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's the standardization that, that is nice that they decided on that and kept to it. Yeah, it's great. It, it very easily could have gone in a very fractured way. But I think luckily they started implementing these rules when aviation was still so new. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there weren't very many planes that they were able to kind of dictate these rules globally instead of like, yeah. you know, having this piecemeal system where some countries like, well, we already have these rules. It's like, no, no, no. Everyone's just getting kind of getting started at the same time. Let's make global rules. And it was that right time in history where you could do things globally, right? I mean, you could communicate that stuff versus roads or something that's like they've been around for so long that they're already customs and country mm-hmm. to by country. Yeah. And I would say, yeah, like you're right. Even communication was getting easier at this point with telegraph and, you know, being able to send messages over long distance uh, helps reduce the amount of time it takes to, to come to these conclusions. So both of the airlines involved in this incident continued operation after the accident. Uh, neither of them suffered from bad publicity as the accident was considered so unlikely and unique as to likely never recur. Ugh. Spoiler, we know that it does occasionally <laughs> happen. It, did ha- it does happen again. Two years later, on April 1st, 1924, Daimler Airway would be merged with Handley Page Transport, Instone Airline, and British Marine Air Navigation. Together, they would form the new Imperial Airways and was meant to set a new higher standard for air travel in the passenger industry. So, you know, early on, you know, it was just a land grab, lots of new <laughs> companies starting up trying to, you know, get in this market and then consolidation. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, inevitable in that industry. So that's, um, you know, like, and again, like we said, there really was no black box, no real investigation. So that's really about all we can say about that specific incident. But still very, very influential. Yeah. This time of year is wild with so many competing demands on our time. So why spend time at the grocery store? That's what HelloFresh is for. 
HelloFresh sends fresh, pre-measured ingredients with tasty recipes straight to your door. They've got tons of variety with more than 50 meals and market items to choose from every month. And they have all your seasonal favorites like Pillsbury pumpkin cookie dough and with cozy season recipes like chicken ramen with shoyu-style broth and turkey ragu gnocchi. Uh, why bother with takeout? Plus, HelloFresh gives you plenty of flexibility. You can customize your order on their app, change your delivery day, skip a week, even change your order size. Uh, it's super great. The food's really, really excellent. Tastes great. It's spiced really well. I mean, I'm kind of, I mean, I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm a picky eater, uh, but I, you know, I don't like eating things just for the sake of eating them. Like when I cook a HelloFresh meal, I am honestly excited to eat it, but I'm also excited to make it. Uh, I think it's a fun little project you can do after work. And then at the end, you get to enjoy the fruits of your labor, AKA a meal. So go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown14. Use code BlackBoxDown14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. It's up to 14 free meals and three free gifts when you go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown14 and use code BlackBoxDown14. Going online without ExpressVPNs, like going to the bathroom without closing the door, it means all your everything is just hanging out for anyone to see. Uh, that might sound extreme, but your internet service provider can see every single website you visit. ISPs can sell you information to tech giants who then use your own information to target you, but ExpressVPN protects you by creating an encrypted tunnel for your data to travel through so it can't be seen by anyone. Not your ISP, not hackers, not that one weird roommate. ExpressVPN is as easy as closing the bathroom door. Just open up the app, click one button, and you're protected. It's rated number one with both CNET and tech radar, so you know it's legit. Like I said, it's a single button in your browser. Well, first of all, it's super easy to install, super easy to turn on and off. It's just like a single button. I use it as a little browser extension. It's just sitting right there. And I'll forget that it's on. It's so uh, like unobtrusive and it works so well. So secure your online activity by visiting expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash blackboxdown. You get an extra three months for free. Expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. Next, we have another incident I want to talk about. This one happened on July 13th, 1928. It was a, a Vickers Vulcan aircraft crashed during a test flight from the Croydon Airport in South London. The Vickers Vulcan was a single-engine biplane that could carry one pilot and up to eight passengers, uh, and only eight of these were ever built. So not 60, but better than three. Okay. See, that one was not the most successful <laughs> so far out of the three. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, 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 you're right, you're right. So... Like I mentioned, this was a test flight for Imperial Airways. Remember, we just mentioned Imperial Airways in that last little incident we talked about. So this, this particular flight was a test flight for Imperial Airways. Uh, however, there were five passengers on board. What? A test flight? Pass- yeah. We're going to get to that. It's, <laughs> like, but I, I, I sense that, uh, that questioning uh, yeah. from you. So the aircraft was not in regular service, but was used for special flights and carrying surplus baggage and freight. Uh, and it had the engine changed on July 12th, which was the day before this incident. The aircraft departed Croydon at midday on July 13th on a flight to test the new engine. Uh, and this opportunity was to take some of the members of staff on a flight, along with a government aeronautical inspection department inspector. Although the aircraft needed to be passed fit by an inspector, the presence of the inspector on this flight was not related to that approval. He just happened to be on the flight. After the aircraft had climbed to 800 feet, it disappeared from view of the airport in a southwest direction. Mm-hmm. The aircraft crashed into a market garden near Lee Cottage on Woodcote Road, uh, and it was seen by residents flying low over the rooftops with the engine evidently in difficulties. The aircraft crashed into a potato field. The pilot was able to climb out of the cockpit and help one of the passengers from the enclosed cabin to get free. However, the aircraft burst into flames and it was not possible to rescue the other passengers, and the four other passengers were killed. Later evidence indicated that at least one had died due to the impact, and the others were unconscious when the fire started. 
An inquest was opened at Brandon Hill near Croydon on July 16, 1928, and after identification of the four passengers, it was adjourned, and then the inquest was resumed on July 30, 1928, and it was explained to the inquest by an employee of an Imperial Airways that it was not unusual for passengers to be taken on test flights, and those on board had permission. So the coroner questioned the wisdom of allowing passengers on what could be a dangerous test flight <laughs> and was told all the passengers had signed indemnity documents. Saying they're okay if they die? Right, like not holding the company liable if anything huh. happens. There was an employee who was in charge of two girls that were on the flight, said that they had asked for permission and it was allowed as long as it was not for more than 15 minutes. <laughs> An engineering superintendent said employees were keen to take joy rides, but agreed it was sometimes a bother. The passenger who survived the accident told the inquest that staff thought of this as a privilege to go on a joy ride and that he would do it again if he had the chance. So I think probably what they were thinking, the people, the passengers, I think what their mentality was, was that flying was still such a new and novel and expensive thing that, you know, if there was this test flight, the plane had to go up anyway. They may as well, like, sneak on for a little joyride just to be able to experience flight. Yeah, that so many people just, like, wanted to do it. Right. And that's why this guy, this guy survived a plane crash in 1928 and is testifying, if I had the chance, I'd do it again, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just like, it, it's just such a, a new thing. I think, you know, people just wanted to see what it was like. And that's why they were doing this, even though it's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. The pilot, Captain John Spafford, gave his evidence to the inquest. Uh, he had been informed that the aircraft needed an engine test, and he was also to take five passengers and some ballast. Spafford calculated his weight would be under the full load and that on the ground, the engine sounded normal. Uh, and I'm going to read a, a quote here from his testimony. When I was about 700 feet, I pushed the nose down to maintain height and noticed that the aircraft began to sink rapidly. I increased the throttle to little effect and then started to look for a safe landing place, but the area was full of high trees and houses. Mm. I increased the throttle and was able to hold height for a few minutes, and then noticed the engine water temperature was over 100 degrees Celsius, and I could see steam from the left-hand engine cowling. The engine lost power again, and I saw a chance to land in some allotments. I pushed the control down to 45 degrees and hit the ground at the same angle, which is a crazy angle, by the way. Yeah. That's, that's really steep. I was trapped by my foot and released myself after about two minutes. As I freed myself, the engine caught fire. I managed to get to the door of the cabin, and only one of the passengers was conscious. Oh, they were all... Oh. Yeah, so they were all knocked out or deceased at that point. Yeah. Uh, but one of the passengers was awake, and that's the one that he managed to, to help out, and who said he would do it again. <laughs> so Spafford agreed with the coroner that the presence of passengers was not required for an engine test. Uh, and after further questioning of the pilot, the jury returned a verdict of accidental death in all four cases. The coroner added that the practice of allowing employees of the airline to go as passengers on test flight should stop. The engineering superintendent from Imperial Airways said that the airline would discontinue the practice. So it's, it's weird to me in this story that the coroner is the one <laughs> making new rules for I know. flights. <laughs> <laughs> the coroner's like, hmm, you know, maybe let's not put people in dangerous situations on planes. Yeah. So yeah, 45 degrees, I mean, that's, you know, straight up, like per perpendicular to the ground would be 90 degrees. And then so halfway between straight up and the ground is 45 degrees. If you want to picture how steep mm -hmm. that was, you know, when they hit the ground, which is pretty, pretty bad. Side note, kind of tying back to our student pilot stories, when you're doing like the emergency landing checklist mm -hmm. in, you know, the, the training plane like I, I fly right now, I think like, 
the last step before you touch down on the ground is you're supposed to open your door. And the thought is that if you crash and the airframe becomes crumpled and it, it might become impossible to open the door. Open, you might get trapped in it. So you're right. So you open the door before you touch down on the ground. That way, if you know the frame's crumpled or you need to force the door open and your legs are hurt, you can still pull yourself out and crawl out of a wreckage. That's a scary thing to think about. <laughs> right. Uh, so that that so you know that I only mentioned that because you know here in this incident, the captain said that his foot was trapped and you know he struggled to get out of the plane. Yeah. So I'm sure it was probably, you know, it was probably something similar. All right. Uh, I got one more incident we're going to talk about here. This is also an Imperial Airway incident. Uh, it's from 1929. Specifically, June 17th, 1929. Uh, it was an Imperial Airway flight that crashed into the English Channel after an engine failure. Uh, for On that last incident, did they ever figure out what was wrong with exactly with the engine or was it just bad engine? No, I don't think they ever found out definitively what was wrong with it. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously the pilot said that his instruments, you know, were reporting over 100 degrees Celsius, which means that, you know, water was boiling. That's the boiling point of water. So I can't say with any certainty what happened, uh, uh-huh. but it sounded like the engine most likely overheated and probably started seizing up, if I had to guess. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, I can't say for certain. I don't know anything about that. You know, engineering and materials were not nearly as robust back then. So, who knows? Okay. And again, since these incidents are so old, there really was no like formal report or, mm-hmm. you know, the, or government agencies, you know, coming up with anything as a result of it. So our next incident is another Imperial Airways crash. This one was in 1929. So on June 17th, 1929, an Imperial Airways flight crashed into the English Channel after an engine failure. The aircraft used was a Handley Page W-10, which was a double twin propeller biplane that could hold 12 passengers. And there were only four of these ever built. So another mm. low number there. Not, <laughs> not a ton of them. That, yeah. This flight also started at the Croydon Airport, bound for Zurich, Switzerland, with a stop at Le Bourget Airport in Paris and a stop at Basel or Basel Airport in Switzerland. There were two crew members and 11 passengers on this flight. The pilot was Captain Braley, who had about 1,000 hours of flying time. Like I said, this flight departed at about 10.30 from Croydon, And when it was about 15 miles out over the English Channel at an altitude of 2,500 feet, a connecting rod in the right engine broke. The crew broadcast a mayday and the pilot attempted to divert to Limpney Airport in Kent, England. Uh, He was, however, unable to reach land and crashed nose first about 12 miles offshore. Which sounds really bad, right? Yeah. But through a strange coincidence, there was a Belgian trawler that was only 50 yards away from where they crashed. What? Yeah, it was a Belgian trawler called Gabby. Like you think like, oh no, they crashed 12 miles offshore. That's terrible. But there just happened to be a boat 50 yards away from where, That's crazy. From where they ditched. I guess they were probably near like, you know, high traffic areas, but that's still very lucky. It's still it, incredibly lucky. Yeah. yeah. So the passengers in the front were thrown from their seats and they became trapped. Four passengers who were seated at the tail escaped and the two crew members managed to escape as well. You know, Gabby was right there and uh, helped rescue six survivors and recovered one of the bodies. They were then transferred to another boat and taken to the Royal Victoria Hospital in Folkestone. And Gabby was able to recover three more bodies, leaving three victims that were unaccounted for. So wait, how many lived and how many died? So there were six survivors and then uh, the other people did not make it. And it was ruled that all four victims whose bodies were recovered had drowned, which was 
sad because that means that they survived mm-hmm. the initial impact and then you know passed Get away. Stuck, yeah, yeah. Once they were once they were in the water. Good on Gabby. Yeah, for being good on, there. Good on Gabby for being there and you know for sticking around to help. Uh, yeah, continue to look for people. So the Air Ministry opened an investigation into the accident under the Air Navigation Regulations 1922. The investigation opened on June 25th at the Royal Courts of Justice in London with Sir Arthur Colifax in charge. The cause of the engine failure was the fracture of the number four connecting rod in the starboard engine. The engine had run for 126 hours since its last overhaul, with the permitted time between overhauls being 300 hours. So it was still within its operational limits. Mm-hmm. And the connecting rod had failed due to the failure of the big end bearing studs. Uh, and again, I think this just goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Uh, materials and engineering just weren't as robust as they are now. They, mm-hmm. you know, people didn't know as much what they were doing. I mean, we were still, we, I, feel, I feel like in, avi- in passenger aviation, we were still trying to get manufacturing down to a real science until fairly recently. Mm-hmm. So the aircraft certificate of airworthiness had been last renewed in November 1928 and was valid for a year. Its maximum permissible load was 2,946 pounds, and the aircraft's load at the time was 2,494 pounds on departure from Croydon, so they were two pounds under their maximum. Evidence was given by three of the four surviving passengers and both crew. The fourth surviving passenger was not called as she was legally a minor at the time and had lost her father in the accident. Mm -hmm. The inquiry closed on July 3rd, Imperial Airways and Napier, who was the engine manufacturer, were cleared of any blame for the accident. Uh, the report into the investigation was published on July 12th, and among the recommendations were that passengers should be provided with seat belts oh. and that aircraft not capable of maintaining level flight. Right. That's <laughs> like, oh, that's a good idea. And we have seat belts now because of this incident uh, that happened again wow. almost 100 years ago. And also their other recommendation was that aircraft not capable of maintaining level flight with an inoperative engine and not designed to land on water, should be withdrawn from continental routes after July 1st, 1930. So this is, I mean, they don't call it the same things we call nowadays, but it's kind of the same principles that we use nowadays that like, oh, if a plane has, you know, multiple engines and it has an engine failure, the remaining engines should be able to continue to fly the plane and keep it level. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because it's like, oh, it had two engines, but one of them, one of them failed and they, they still crash, right? It's like, oh, we have that idea now because of this incident. Okay. And then you're saying like uh, a plane that isn't capable of staying in the air without an engine. That means like a plane that you you always say like, oh, a plane wants to, to stay in the air, wants right. to fly. Does that mean that like this plane wasn't able to, to like glide? Well, I think what they were saying here, what, it was kind. it's kind of not the way we would say things nowadays. I think what they meant to say was if a plane has multiple engines and one of the engines fails, it should okay. still maintain level flight, not a plane with no engines. Okay. Yeah, so I think, you know, this is, you know, the basis for what we call ETOPS nowadays, which, you know, we talked about a couple, you know, several episodes ago about that idea that if a plane loses an engine, it still needs to be able to fly and divert to an airport. Yeah, the backup. Yeah, they also have a weird caveat as well saying that if the plane can't continue to fly within an operative engine, it should at least be designed to land on water, (laughs) which is... (laughs) Okay, I mean, okay, I guess, but you know, ideally, you want that plane to continue flying. Uh, I assume, you know, they have did they had obviously they had different standards back then, and I assume there's a reason that they carved that out. Yeah, sorry, that just makes me think of that GTA video that we did with the uh, we were trying to do the prison break, and we we're like, we're gonna get him out by sea on the little plane boat thing. Yeah, 
I, I think seaplanes are uh, are really interesting. Uh, yeah, you know, planes that can kind of navigate the best of all worlds. Yeah, but that's it. That's actually all the epi- that's all the incidents we have here to cover. All of, all three of these obviously super influential. If you wonder why we have seatbelts, you can. And next time you're on a plane and you click your seatbelt on, just think back to June seventeenth, nineteen twenty nine, when there was an incident that mandated that passengers should have seatbelts. Is that before cars were mandated seatbelts? Let me tell you something, Chris. I don't think cars were mandated to have seatbelts until, in the United States at least, I think it wasn't until like 1964 or 1965. So they didn't even have them. They, they, I think, I believe they were an option because I used to own a 1964 Chevy pickup and that truck had seatbelts, but it's that's because the original owner had purchased them as an option at the time. Wow. Uh, and I believe, if I remember, I could be wrong, I believe that... If you still own an old vehicle like that that came without seatbelts, you're not legally required to retrofit them in. At least that was the case back 20 years ago when I owned that truck. That's, that's crazy. I'm going to double check uh, that date right here. So the United States is weird, Chris. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, you know. We both live here. Uh, you know that. You know, a lot of seatbelt laws are passed and enforced on a state level. So there is, from what I can tell... It looks like a patchwork of laws that all went into effect at different times. But it looks like, for the most part, most of those laws really begin like becoming enforced in the mid-80s. In the mid-80s. Yes. 1980s. <laughs> That's when it seems like it started really becoming enforced. Uh, specifically, I, we live in Texas. I can tell you, in Texas, it was September 1st, 1985, Children aged seven years and younger and 57 inches or taller in all seats or people ages eight years and above in all seats. That's when they were required to wear them or yes. they had, okay. But they, the cars had them before, were required to give, to put them in the cars, right? I believe That's, they were in there, but yeah, the, okay. the requirement to wear them is what I'm looking at here. Yeah. So uh, the actual, the first seatbelt law that was a federal law took effect January 1st, 1968, and that required all vehicles except buses to be fitted with seat belts in designated seating positions. So the auto manufacturers were mandated to install them as of 1968, but then passengers being requi- legally required to wear them was not passed until starting, it looks like, in the mid-80s. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's crazy. It, it's crazy. I hadn't thought about it that way until he pointed it out. It's crazy to me that you were required to wear a seat belt in a plane before you were required to wear it in a car. Not... Even by a close amount. Yeah, or even just like put it in the plane. It was required right. to be in the plane. Yeah. It was like you had, you had seatbelts in planes for 40 years before you had them in cars. God. That's, that's, that's nuts to me. All right, well, that's it for this supplementary episode of Black Box Down. All of these are really influential, but as you can tell, like there's not a whole lot of stuff we can dig into because there, you know, there really weren't reports back then. But these are all such influential incidents that we, we felt like we had to cover them. We felt like maybe this is the best way to kind of put them all together and uh, present them uh, all at once. Hopefully you enjoy this episode. Uh, give us a follow on social media if you can, at BlackBoxDownPod. I'll see if I can find photos of some of these old planes. I don't know <laughs> what, I, what I'm going to be able to find. <laughs> if I can find any photos of these old planes, I will post them online. But I can't make any promises just because I don't. Th- this was so long ago. I don't know what I'm going to be able to find. But thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back with uh, regular episodes here uh, next week, I believe. Uh, yeah. So tune in. Don't forget, we also have a, a YouTube channel. So, you know, you get 
you, you get Black Box Down wherever you listen to podcasts, but uh, there's also a YouTube channel, uh, Black Box Down. Uh, we upload our podcast episodes there. So if you're the kind of person who likes to listen to podcasts on YouTube, uh, we got you covered there too. So go, uh, go check it out. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Yeah.